Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, to those of you here in this room and to those of you tuning in online. It is good to be with you all. I'm thankful uh, for the opportunity to worship with you. We uh, just sang my favorite hymn together, and so that's always a deep encouragement uh, to me. It was good to sing it with you, and now to be able to open up God's Word with you is a particular blessing uh, to me. I hope that your uh, new year has gotten off to a good start and that you're already enjoying the Lord's blessing in your lives individually and as a church. And uh, I invite you this morning, if you would, to go ahead and make your way over to James uh, chapter 1 with me. It's towards the very back of your Bible. James has been a, a book uh, that I have always been drawn to. Uh, and although James deals with a lot of other things, one of the main reasons that uh, I have returned to James in my life time and time again has been because of James uh, helps us to face trials in our lives. It has been a go-to for me when I have faced suffering, and I think we'll see why as we dig into uh, this morning's verses. But as I said, trials are just, you know, one area that James uh, gives attention to. And, uh, you know, in this letter, James addresses issues of everyday life. Uh, he helps us think about our words. Are we speaking words that are uh, tearing others down or words that are building others up? Uh, he, he helps us think about our wealth or our lack thereof. And it, it deals with many other areas of life like sickness and conflict and prayer, just to name a few. James is considered by many to be the, the Proverbs of the New Testament because uh, like the, books of, the book of Proverbs, it is very practical and filled with wisdom. James was written by James, the, uh, the half-brother of Jesus. In verse 1, we'll notice James simply identifies himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to note that James could have included far more detail about himself in the intro, which would have uh, drawn attention to his authority, but he chose not to, which makes me think James was probably a, a humble man. It's also instructive for us. Uh, James believed what was most important for people to know about him was not his position in the church or that he was related to Jesus, uh, rather that he was a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the first things we hear of Jesus' brothers in John chapter 7 is that they actually don't believe in him. They don't believe in Jesus. But then in Acts, we learn that they worshiped right alongside the rest of the disciples. And it seems like a pretty dramatic shift uh, that has taken place. Paul will explain to us in 1 Corinthians 5 that the, the resurrection of Christ actually opened up the eyes of James. James appeared, or Jesus appeared to James following the resurrection. And not long after that, James became one of the leading Christians in the, the early church in Jerusalem. You'll notice that James writes with vivid in imagery. Uh, it seems clear that James is a very gifted writer. We'll see illustrations and pictures of boats and the sea and forests and farmers. And even though there is very little mention of Jesus in this letter, it doesn't take long working your way through this letter to see that James learned a lot from his older brother and Jesus has left his mark all over this letter. It's filled with the wisdom of Jesus. James writes to impart wisdom to followers of Christ so that we might grow in wisdom and live our lives fully devoted to God, not just hearing what is true, but then acting upon it, taking action, and living as faithful followers of Jesus. So if you will, join me as I read uh, God's word for us. I'll read James 1, 1 through 12, and then I'll pray. James 1, Beginning in verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the, in the dispersion, greetings. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. What a gift, what a blessing, what an encouragement it is to us. We thank you for how it ministers to us, for how it encourages us, for the ways in which it rebukes us even, for how it strengthens us. Father, we thank you for this morning, for how your word prepares us for trials and for how it ministers to us in the midst of our trials. We pray that as we spend time together in James this morning, would you cause us not to be hearers only, but that we would be doers of your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I read uh, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, something that many of you are probably familiar with and have read yourself uh, sometime uh, around a year or so ago. And if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it and parents to even read it to your children. Uh, one thing I really enjoyed about it was how it depicts the Christian life as a journey. And on that journey, Christian, who is the main character's name, uh, Christian encounter, he encounters many trials along the way. And there's this understanding that the road that Christian is traveling is the road that every believer travels. It's a road filled with hardships, filled with difficulty, filled with danger even. But it's clear that all of it's worth it. James portrays a similar picture of the Christian life in our verses this morning. It's a journey filled with many trials along the way. And James's aim in these verses is to help us endure through trials and not to fall away. That's his heart. That's his goal. That's what he's after. He wants for you and for me to endure. And he tells us three things we need to do. Three things I see in verses 1 through 12 this morning so that we endure through trials. And the first thing we'll see that we need to do to endure through trials is to count it all joy. Count it all joy when you meet trials. So look with me again starting at, at verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now notice, after he briefly introduces himself, we see that James addresses the, the letter to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. The 12 tribes is how the people of God were described in the Old Testament. The dispersion refers to the scattering of God's people who, who once lived in Israel, now scattered among the nations. We see this in, in Acts eleven nineteen, where it refers to those who were scattered because of persecution that arose over, over Stephen. 
And more than likely, James wrote this letter to Jewish Christians who have been scattered as a result of persecution. The fact that the original audience had been forced to live away from their home country means many of them are probably experiencing poverty and some forms of oppression, just as James will later indicate in this letter. And the first thing James tells them after his greeting may sound shocking once you realize what he's saying. In verse 2, he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. The words he puts together in that sentence, if you're anything like me, they don't seem to fit together at first, do they? And yet, James is seeking to impart some wisdom to us. The people James were writing to were facing trials. And notice, for the most part, James skips the pleasantries. A lot of New Testament letters have a much longer greeting than this. James gets right to the point. He basically starts off his letter saying, okay, let's, let's talk about those trials that you are facing right now. Here's what you need to do. You need to count it all joy. This gives us an idea of what James is doing in this letter. That's what he jumps straight to in his opening lines. He wants to address the trials that they were facing. And it tells us about the situation of the believers that he was writing to for sure. James was telling us and them how to respond to the trials in our lives. I think it's safe to say what James is calling us to do here isn't our normal response, is it? We don't naturally just respond to trials by rejoicing. For most of us, I think our first response tends to be grumbling or complaining or anger and frustration, self-pity perhaps. We may even despair, but more than likely, we're not counting it all joy. So how is this possible? How does James expect for, for us to do this? After James gives them the command to count it all joy when they meet trials, starting in verse 3 is where he starts to help us understand how we can do this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Here's what James is saying. When you, when you meet trials of various kinds, your faith is being tested so how do you respond when you get that phone call and you've lost your job? How do you respond when you're rejected or you're mocked in some way? How do you respond when your finances take a turn for the worst? The testing described here is not so much to find out if your faith is genuine, but rather to refine and to strengthen the faith that already exists. When your faith is tested, steadfastness or endurance is produced. In other words, God is working through your trials. He is doing something. Something is being accomplished through them. God is at work in your trials, producing endurance in you. For the believer, your trials have a strengthening effect on your faith. They cause your roots to go down deeper into the soil. Your foundation becomes stronger and more secure. I think we all know that we don't get in great shape and we don't grow large muscles or become really fast or really strong or really agile without hard work. We have to work our muscles and we have to grow our muscles and train our bodies in order for those things to happen, don't we? James is telling us something similar here. We need resistance. We need something that pushes against us that actually grows our faith. This is, this is where trials come in. Our faith needs to be worked out so that it can grow. And if you successfully seek comfort for much of your life, and good luck with that, by the way, but if you successfully seek comfort for much of your life with very few trials, your, your faith isn't going to have the opportunity it needs to grow. Suffering provides the opportunity to cling to God's promises, for your faith to be tested so that it can grow. 
James says, you already know this to be true. In other words, this is a consistent teaching in Scripture. It's something we know to be true of the Christian life. Our faith grows through learning to persevere in hardship. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and, three and 4, Paul puts it this way. He says, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. James says, in trials, our faith is being tested, which produces steadfastness. And then in verse 4, he adds, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When trials come our way, endurance is produced, and that leads to us becoming mature in Christ. We grow into mature Christians. James says we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. At first, it may almost sound like James is saying we can attain perfection in this life. He's not teaching that we can become sinless. Though it is true that we will all experience life without sin eventually, that won't happen in this life. So what, so what does he mean? What James is getting at is more the idea of being mature in Christ. But keep in mind what James is describing here is the, the ultimate goal of faith's testing. He's not claiming we'll attain that goal in this life, but still we ought to strive to be perfect as God is perfect, to be holy as God is holy. That's our target, that's what the, and that's what the trials and the hardships we face are working in us as a perseverance that when we remain faithful to God over the long haul, as we endure hardships, we learn to persevere, and this in turn will lead to wholeness in Christian character, to a maturity and a wholehearted devotion to God. So if we could kind of piece or piece all this back together or summarize some of this, if you want to be a mature Christian, if you want to grow in Christ-likeness, you need to know that God is using your trials to grow your faith and to produce endurance. And as faith grows and as, pro- and as endurance is produced, that will lead to maturity. So don't despise the trials when they come your way. Rather, James says, count it all joy. Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher, faced many trials in his lifetime, including a, a lifelong battle with depression. And he said this of trials in the Christian life. I am afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. In other words, as Spurgeon looked back, he hadn't learned much or been helped much by the easy times in his life. God's grace in his life and his growth had usually come in the difficult times. This requires a change of mindset, a a different perspective on life. Not Not to go around looking for suffering, not to put on a smile and just act like we're happy when trials enter into our lives, but to view trials in light of of verses like Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We count it joy when we face trials, not because the trials bring us joy in and of themselves, but because we know that God is with us in the trials and he is working for our good. 
We need to remember that God is working in our trials to bring us to maturity. But there's more that we need. In verses 5 through 8, James is going to tell us the second thing we need to do if we're going to endure through trials is ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom in your trials. Let's pick back up in in verse 5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. In the life of any individual and in the life of any family, there will be seasons filled with more suffering and seasons where there seems to be less. As I think about uh, my own church family where where I serve, it seems that we have been in one of those seasons where the level of suffering has been pretty great. Loved ones have been taken from us. People are battling cancer and other sicknesses and diseases just over the Christmas holidays. One of our beloved saints went home to be with the Lord on Christmas Day. Add to that those who are plagued with fear and anxiety and depression. There's many of you at Park Hills. I'm sure that you are no strangers to suffering as you think about your individual lives, your families, and your church family as a whole. Some of you may be lonely. Some of you may have strained relationships with people that you love. Some of you are praying for children who have strayed. Some of you are struggling financially. And that only begins to touch on some of the, the struggles and the trials that we face. We can start to understand, can't we, why James says when you meet trials of various kinds. Because our list of trials can vary and seem to be never ending. And here's the thing. When bad things happen, When traumatic events take place, when we face the terrible realities of life in a fallen world, everything can begin to feel as if it's spinning out of control, and some of you might be there right now, where it's hard to even tell which way is up because trials have thrown you into such a dizzying tailspin. And when that happens, we desperately need wisdom. All of us know people, or I've heard of people, who seem to give evidence of following Christ, but then something devastating happened. Some trial or from a form of suffering entered into their lives and they walked away from the faith. That's James's concern as he writes. He wants us to endure through hardships. He doesn't want us to fall away. And it's worth mentioning, I think, that we want to read James and learn from James and benefit from James and use James to help us to prepare for suffering before it even happens. That would be best. That would be ideal. That said, James will certainly help us uh, during times of suffering as well. If we're going to view our trials the way that James is telling us to view our trials, we're going to need wisdom. If you find yourself in in the middle of a trial, oftentimes you won't know what to do, and that's okay. Your job in those moments is, is to go to God and to say, Father, I can't even think straight right now. I'm not, even, I'm not even sure what just happened. I'm still trying to process it. I just know that I'm, I'm really confused and I need your help. So please give me wisdom. Please help me to know what to do. Please guide the next steps that I take. Help me to put one foot in front of the other and help me to continue to trust you and to cling to you by faith. James says if you need wisdom, Ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to you. To help us to do this, to make sure that that we go to God in our trials and ask him for wisdom, James is actually going to give us a view into God's heart. 
into the person that we're going to making this request. James comes alongside us and our, our sometimes hesitancy to go to God during our trials. And he says, here's something that you need to understand. God is incredibly generous. That's his heart. Out of his heart, he gives. He gives wisdom to all who ask him. And he gives generously to all without reproach. I have three little kids. My two sons are are three and two. And if one of my sons comes to me when he's struggling and, and and I'm too busy and I just berate him every single time that he asks for help, then he's probably going to stop coming to me, isn't he? But if my son learns over time that he can approach me when he's having a bad day and that I'll be ready to listen to him and I'll be ready to help him in any way that I can and that I'll interact with him in love and humility, understanding that he is a child who needs his daddy's help, then his confidence will grow and he'll feel comfortable approaching me and he won't think twice about coming to me and asking me for help because he knows his daddy's character and he knows his daddy's heart towards him, that I want to help him. We need to understand, God God isn't shaking his head at me when I approach him and ask him for help. He's not thinking, when is this guy going to finally get his act together and stop having to ask me for help all the time? No, he's generous. He loves to give and he gives generously to all without reproach. In Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Jesus tells us, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Christmas was only a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, remember? Something like that. I I can't keep track. And those of you who have children, my guess is you enjoy giving your kids gifts at Christmas time. Maybe it was one small gift or maybe it was much more than that, but the point is it brings earthly parents joy to give our children gifts. As a parent, we love to see the joy on our children's faces, don't we? It, It brings us joy. How much more so our Father in heaven, he loves to give us good gifts. James does give one qualification, though. In verse 6, he says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, I think to some, this might sound like James just took a turn in a completely different direction. First, he was telling us about how generous God is and how he loves to give us wisdom, but now it sounds like he's telling us we don't deserve to get anything from God if we have any doubts. It's important that we understand that James is warning us against here. It's, he's not saying if you have questions or if you don't understand everything with absolute certainty that, that God is not going to give you wisdom. This is referring to the person who is, you can think of it as hedging their bets, They don't normally depend on God. They normally don't turn to him in prayer, but now they're trying to have one foot in their own worldly wisdom and one foot in God's wisdom, hoping that between their own wisdom and God's help, something will work out for them. What we'll see in this letter is that James is calling us to wholehearted devotion to God. 
The person he's describing here is not devoted to God. They normally don't depend on him and they're not trusting him. He says this person is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. He goes on to say that he's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. I had moments when I was in my college years where I was, I was just living for the world. I wasn't a Christian yet. I wasn't interested in serving God. Uh, I was devoted to my own flesh and to whatever I thought would bring me happiness in this world, in this life. And in the midst of that, I had these moments where I would pray to God for something that I really wanted. And I would tell him, God, if you'll just do this one thing for me, if you'll just give me this one thing, then I'll serve you for the rest of my life. I think that's along the lines of what James has in mind here. When I pleaded with God to give me some selfish desire while my daily life was lived with no interest for the things of God, I had no business receiving anything from the Lord. I was a double-minded man. Some of you may worry that you're not asking with enough faith. I I just want to say, I don't think that's what James is getting at here. If you're trusting in the Lord, he stands ready to give you wisdom to face your trials. Warning aside, James is helping his readers to endure in trials, and he wanted them to have confidence approaching God and asking for wisdom in trials. James has given us a glimpse into God's heart. He's reminded us of God's character so that we will feel confident and comfortable approaching God in our trials and asking him for the wisdom that we need. In the midst of trials, especially when we find ourselves not knowing what to do, we need to turn to God in faith, ask him for the wisdom we need, and God loves to answer that prayer. But there's one final thing James says we need Uh, when we find ourselves in the midst of trials. The third thing we need to do to endure through trials, learn to view your trials in light of eternity. Learn to view your trials in light of eternity. Let's pick back up in verse nine. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So here James gives an example from from life for us to consider. In verse 2, he mentioned the various trials we may face. And here he focuses on the trials that are faced by the rich and the poor in particular. The lowly brother is referring to someone living in in humble circumstances. This could certainly go beyond living in poverty, but given where James goes next, talking about the rich, he certainly seems to have the poor in mind in verse 9. So he begins with the poor. This was likely a reality for many of those that James was writing to. We will see him address the poor again later in this letter, so this was probably at least one of the trials that James had in mind as he wrote to them. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. It's a common theme or common temptation for those who are considered poor to feel like they are less important than those with wealth. They may start to listen to the message that we are bombarded by in this world, especially in in our day and age, that their lower status means that they have less value or worth. If you are poor, you are often seen as a failure in the eyes of the world. 
And everywhere, everywhere we go in this world, there are ads trying to show us how much better our life can be and enticing us to buy more stuff, to have more nice things, and then we can finally be somebody is essentially the message. If focused on this life only, those considered to be poor may think they are loved less by God, especially if they're looking around them at all of these wealthy people and how easily we can start to associate God's wealth with, with, we can associate wealth with God's favor and lack of wealth with God's disfavor. And then that might even lead to bitterness, to weariness, wondering why God hasn't given them the, the material possessions that he's given to others. Here's what James says to the poor. Let him boast in his exaltation. James says, don't worry about what others think of you. Don't worry about how the world sees you. Learn to view your life from God's perspective. By faith, believers already have a heavenly citizenship. And in Ephesians 2, Paul says that there's a sense in which we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's what James wants the poor to remember. But James is also pointing beyond just this life. And I think that will become clear in the verses that follow. I think he he also has eternity in mind. These believers he was speaking to who who were in poverty and are going to be exalted with Christ for eternity. This life isn't all there is. It's fleeting. The time you and I are alive here on this earth is but a very small frame of time, just a snapshot when we step back and consider all of time and all of eternity. And if you don't believe me, just ask an elderly saint uh, here in this congregation, and they'll tell you it seems like yesterday that they were a teenager or getting married or starting their first job or starting to have children. I just celebrated my my 37th birthday uh, this past week, and to some of you, I may still seem like a, a young buck, but I can testify Uh, The older we get, the faster time seems to just move by. It seems like with each passing year, the pace at which life goes just picks up and gets a notch or two faster. James wants us to learn to view all of our life and our trials with an eternal mindset. With an eternal mindset, you'll be less concerned about how much money you make or how many possessions you have in this life, and you especially won't be as concerned with how others view you or treat you related to your income or or what kind of home you live in, because for the rest of time, you're going to be with Christ. You're going to have the highest position that there is. You're going to be exalted. Because of Christ, it doesn't matter if you're poor in this life. You are spiritually rich. You are a child of the king, and there is an incredible inheritance that is yours. As a child of God, all that the father will give to his son will be extended to you if you belong to Christ. Now, James will contrast the poor person with the rich person, and the rich have their own unique temptations and trials. Look with me again, starting in verse 9. But the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The danger for those who are wealthy is that they'll trust in their wealth. They'll find their hope, security, their meaning there in their wealth. 
And if those considered to be rich, and we have to face it, in America, this is pretty much all of us. If we don't have an eternal perspective, we will be tempted to boast in our wealth and even to reach a point where we no longer see our need for God because we think we've, we've got everything we need. If those considered to be rich, well, let me back up. To the rich, James says, boast in your humiliation. In other words, humble yourself. Humble yourself because in all your wealth, money, possessions, you name it, you are just as sinful and you need Christ just as much as the person living in poverty. If anything, you need to recognize the unique challenges and temptations that your riches will bring into your life. James is warning us, don't focus on temporary things, on your stuff, on your bank account, on your home, on your wardrobe. Those things will not last. Jesus puts it pretty bluntly in Matthew 6 when he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on, on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And a few verses later, he adds, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus was concerned about our hearts. He was concerned about our wholehearted devotion to God. And James, his younger brother, James shares the same concern for the saints. So brothers and sisters, are you enslaved to your stuff? Are you devoted to your money or to making more of it? Are you devoted to living in luxury and filling up your bank accounts and building up your own empire that you think will give you all the security and comfort and satisfaction that your heart desires? If so, I think James would say repent. If you're devoting yourself to the American dream, living like the world, building your own little kingdoms, it's time to wake up and realize that you can't serve two masters. James gives a, vi a vivid illustration, starting in verse 10, talking about the rich person. It says, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So whether it be our money, our possessions, or even things like our, our physical looks, we deceive ourselves into thinking that these things will last forever. One commentator put it this way, referring to James's illustration of the flower. He just put this really, really well. It says, James's picture of choice for what wealth is like is not the foundation stone or sturdy pillar that buildings need to keep them up. It is the wild desert flower. In its prime, it is a thing of beauty. There is color and delicacy. At times in the desert, the landscape is carpeted by wildflowers, lending a colorful hue to an otherwise barren view. But their beauty is matched by their brevity. Once the sun reaches full height and blasts the land with a scorching wind, it is not long before the flowers are gone. The colors go, the life withers out of them, and nothing is left. One quick blast of Middle Eastern sun, and the whole show is over. Our riches will fade. This isn't original to me, but it's stuck with me over the years. The things we treasure today will all wind up in a junkyard. 
And I think it's good that we just stop and think about that from time to time. All of our treasures today, the, li- the latest iPhone, that new outfit, the flat screen TV, whatever it is, it's all headed for the same place. That's what James wants, wants the wealthy to understand. You can't take all of your junk with you when you depart from this life, all of the money that you've stockpiled. So don't live as if this life is all that there is. All of our stuff is going to fade away. It is utter foolishness to trust in those things, brothers and sisters, to fill up our hearts with a bunch of stuff that isn't going to last. I wanted to spend just a, a moment on this because I think we, we underestimate how much we've been influenced by the world in this area. Uh, in some ways, it's the water that we're just swimming in so much so that I don't even think we notice sometimes. We just think it's normal. If you make a lot of money, the Bible has no problem with that. <laughs> Please don't hear any of this as a rebuke uh, for making lots of money. What do you do with your money? That's the key. If the Lord has blessed you with the ability to make money, be generous. What an opportunity the Lord has given you to support the work of the gospel through your giving. So be generous, just like our God gives generously to all without reproach. Through our giving, we are able to advance the gospel. We glorify God by showing that we value him more than our stuff. And we are blessed and our joy will be increased. When we hold on to our money with an open hand, recognizing that it's not even our money to begin with. It's God's money. He's entrusted it to us. Our job is to be faithful stewards who manage his money well and invest it in the gospel, which ultimately will bear fruit for all of eternity. Wealth doesn't last, and it makes a very poor God. Christ is our treasure. So may that be evident how we manage our money. May he be our only treasure. In trials, those in poverty need to boast in their exaltation, and those with wealth need wisdom. They need to view this life in light of eternity. So rather than trusting in wealth, they depend entirely upon Christ and boast in the gospel. If you haven't read a missionary biography lately, let me encourage you to do so. They are always incredibly encouraging to me. So I just love to remind others, pick one up, read it from time to time. One good biography uh, to pick up and read would be Shadow of the Almighty, where Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, tells the story of her husband, Jim, and, and four other missionaries who were speared to death in Ecuador in 1956 while trying to reach a people uh, group for the first time in history with the gospel. Jim is famously quoted and often quoted, but it is a wonderful quote to remind ourselves of, as saying, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot gain. Sorry, let me start over because I messed it up. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim's quote makes it clear that he viewed his life in light of eternity. And his actions and ultimately his death proved this to be true. He was willing to risk his life and even to die so that others could hear the gospel and so they could have life. And it was worth it. It was even worth dying for It's not possible to live like Jim Elliot lived without viewing trials in the way that James teaches us to view trials in this passage. We also need to know that when we endure, we will receive our reward. James ties all of these verses together in verse 12, if you'll look there with me. In verse 12, he says, "Blessed, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life is a victor's crown that, that God will place on the head of every Christian. Every person who treasures Christ and endures to the end will receive the crown. So just imagine with me for a moment, if you will, you will stand before God. He will place a crown on your head and tell you, well done, good and faithful servant. You endured to the end. You finished the race. That moment is the moment that all of your trials are preparing you for. And that moment is something that all of us should spend more time thinking about because it will help us to endure. It's not a question of if we will face trials. It's a matter of when those trials will come. When we encounter trials, we don't find joy in the trial itself. We're looking beyond the trial to that crown of life that God has promised to those who endure. Do you want to endure? Is that a goal that you're, that you're serious about to grow in maturity and to endure until the end? Then James says, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds because God is working for your good. Your faith is being strengthened. Endurance is being produced in you. And your trust and dependence upon God is growing. So brothers and sisters, don't be surprised by trials when they come as if something strange is happening to you. Prepare now. Ask for wisdom now. Be a student of the word now. Start asking the Lord to help you view this life in light of eternity right now. So that when trials come your way, you will endure, knowing that God is good. He's on his throne, and he's working all things together for your good and for his glory. And someday, you will receive your reward. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a generous God. You love to give good gifts to your children. We thank you that even in the worst situations in life, we know that you are working for our good and that you are present with us. You will not leave us or forsake us. So help us to cry out to you, to ask you for help, to ask you for wisdom. Father, for those who are facing various trials this morning and are needing wisdom, because they don't know what to do. I ask that you would give them wisdom. Help them to know what to do. Help them to do what they need to do. Help us to change our minds, Father. So often we think about this life only, about what we can see and feel and touch. Help us to approach this life with an eternal mindset, viewing everything in light of eternity. Help us to trust you. Give us the grace to devote ourselves to you. That's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.